Advance on Mosul, Iraqi troops have captured the airport, is the end in sight. Starving in South Sudan, when war leads to famine, beware of the honey trap and Russia's propaganda war against NATO troops, plus Trump's new national security advisor. What's his thinking? Iraqi troops have captured the airport in Mosul, a vital strategic location in the battle to rid the city of Islamic State fighters. The operation, backed by the American-led coalition, took about four hours and began with overnight airstrikes. It's reported IS is still holding positions in western districts of the city. Well, Michael Pregent is a former US intelligence officer and now an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute, a US think tank. Good to speak to you today. You're joining us from Washington, aren't you? as well as our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Um, how significant is the capture of the airport, Michael? Well, it's a, it's a huge blow to, the, uh, to ISIS in that now you can use an airfield in the ISIS capital, Iraq, to conduct attacks against ISIS, to develop intelligence, to use that airport, airport to recruit local Sunnis in the, neighbor, in, the, in the city of Mosul. That's what we did in 2005 and 2006. We took over the airfield. We made our operations intelligence-based. We recruited local Sunnis, and we were able to decapitate uh, al-Qaeda leadership. Mm. And, of course, the Iraqis wouldn't have been able to do this without close air support. Who would have provided that air support? Well, the, the Iraqis have an, a uh, close air support capability as well in rotoring aircraft, but that was mainly a, a coalition effort to provide precision strikes on uh, positions that ISIS positions could, that could actually affect the airfield, such as motor positions, technical vehicles, um, assets that could actually uh, affect the airfield operation, motors, rockets, things like that. So just the Iraqis or supported by the US and perhaps the British? Uh, yeah, the coalition definitely did the mm. precision strikes. The Iraqi Air Force does have a rotary air uh, capability, but they're not as... Uh, is accurate with their strikes. So we're trying to, that's the that's the role of the US advisors on the ground to make sure that there isn't indiscriminate targeting of Sunnis on the ground in Mosul because that just makes the situation worse. Mm. Now, do you think that the new US administration has made any changes in the way they deal with the, <coughs> the situation at the moment in the advance on Mosul? Well, I've worked for both H.R. Uh, McMaster and, and, and General Mattis and, and also General Petraeus and Odierno, but when Mattis and McMaster both emphasized is protecting the civilian populations from not only al-Qaeda or ISIS, but also from the Shia militias. So we were likely to see a change in how the U.S. Um, works with indigenous forces on the ground, meaning we'll work with more professionalized military and we'll stop supporting the uh, IRGC-backed militias, now co code word, um, they're being called Government of Iraq-approved paramilitary forces. And that's basically Shia militia. So you'll see a change there. Both McMaster and Mattis know that you have to, the only way to defeat a Sunni insurgent group is with Sunni intel and Sunni manpower. Mm. And there's plenty of plenty of that in Mosul. And I think the Mosul operations will now start to to use that, that those 300,000 military-age males in Mosul to start providing intel, decapitate leadership, and start targeting the remnants of ISIS. There's no reason to destroy Mosul to kill 3,000 ISIS fighters. 
Interesting that you mentioned General McMaster. We'll be talking about the new National Security Advisor to Donald Trump later in the programme. Just briefly, since you did work with him, what's he like? Oh, he's great. He's, uh, he has the most eloquent use of the, the F-bomb I've ever heard. He's a PhD. He can, he can win over Iraqis. They trust him. He's a, he's a commander on the ground going back to Desert Storm. He is a strategic thinker. He will look at Iraq post-ISIS. He will look at what needs to be done in Baghdad to reconcile with its Sunni and Kurdish populations. He understands that you don't have a temporary victory over ISIS if it benefits Iran permanently. So what, so, so what will he be telling Donald Trump about what should be done in Iraq once Mosul is recaptured? Well, I think what he'll say is let's give our special operators and our intelligence community the assets they need to start developing uh, targets against ISIS leadership in Mosul. And let's start what, using our the weight of U.S. leverage on Baghdad to get Baghdad to move away from the Iranian sphere of influence and more towards a, a sovereign state that actually takes care of all of its people. He understands the importance of Iraq, that Baghdad has to be trusted by its population. If we don't do that, then we simply reset the conditions that led to ISIS to begin with. A further entrenched Sunni population distrustful of Baghdad, distrustful of Iran, and distrustful of the United States. So he, he knows how to do this right. In 2005, in Talafer, he set, he set the, uh, the stage for what the surge was going to look like in 2007. He kicked out Shia militias from Talafer using local the local population, and the general he worked with is General Najam al-Jabouri, and he's actually in charge of the Mosul operation. So you have the right guys on the ground now, and the right people advising the president on what to do to defeat ISIS permanently. In and that, you have to do that. Yeah, sorry. In that yeah. light, do you think that the American involvement in Iraq will be long-term? Well, Mattis has said that. It has, it has to, what we're gonna get away from are these timetables that we do, that we say that we're gonna do a surge for 18 months and on this date we're gonna withdraw. All that does is give our enemy, who's very patient, a timetable in which to work with. So we are gonna be there, there will not be a timetable for withdrawing. And the emphasis is gonna be on how do you get the Sunni population in Iraq to trust the heavily Iranian-influenced government of Baghdad again. And that's where the emphasis will be. Do you have the answer to that? We have to hug Baghdad tighter than Iran is. We have to use our $3 trillion economy against Iran's and show Iraq that their future is better aligned with Western um, power centers, regional Sunni powers, and get away from Iran's influence. Because Iran, the more influence Iran has in Iraq, the more likely we are to see ISIS 2.0. Mm. ISIS 3.0 over the next five to ten years. We're listening to, to you today, as <clears throat> ever, is our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Christopher. Um, the double act, the two generals, Mattis and McMaster, is much better. I'm not knocking anybody who's gone before, much better than we have seen and the co coincidence of the timing of all this. But let's put this in just in one perspective. Um, listeners will sort of say, oh, we've got the airport, that's great. Next question has to be, now what do you do with it? We know you bring in equipment with it, etc. But you've now got to start thinking in practical terms, as the guy on the ground does, about force protection. You've got to decide when you've got Mosul. That's the assumption that we we get Mosul. What do you do with Mosul? Then you have to start to bring the genius of Mattis McMaster and a lot of other people together and say, do we keep, for example, 
Do we keep Baghdad on side, or does Baghdad simply uh, revert to type, and that is the conflict between the thinking between Shia and, and Sunni, which we should never forget is is a core problem in, in Iraq. This is the beginning, a rather good beginning of what could be a very, very worthwhile phase, but there's a lot of hard work yet to do. Michael, Simply around Mosul. Michael Pregen, in the next coming days and weeks, uh, given the airport has been taken, how do you think the fight will develop for the rest of Mosul? Well, I think the airport is key, just, just like uh, what Christopher said. Um, the airport is centre. You need, you know, over the next month, now that you have the airport, you, you need to be able to protect it, but you need to make it a safe place for Sunnis in Mosul to be able to come to, to join the security forces, to stand up the 2nd Iraqi Army Division again. And, and here's the math in Mosul. 3,000 ISIS fighters, 300,000 military-aged males in Mosul, surrounded by a predominantly Shia force and the Iraqi security forces, heavily militia infiltrated in the, in the federal police, in the emergency response battalions, in the 15th and 16th Iraqi Army divisions, they're, they're literally border corps officers in charge of former Jaysh al-Medi guys. And then you have the Shia militias. So the math is simple. 3,000 ISIS fighters, 300,000 Sunni military-aged males. They are the center of gravity. You gotta get those Sunni military-aged males in Mosul to turn against ISIS and not, and not believe that the real threat is this encroaching Shia military force that's coming on Mosul. Uh, we do not want to push them into armed resistance against the Shia militias. We want to empower them, we want to bring them back into the security forces, and we want them to help us target ISIS. They will not do that if they don't believe that Baghdad can be trusted, because in the past, when they were part of the Sons of Iraq or the Awakening, Baghdad targeted them, left them uh, vulnerable to reprisal attacks by Al-Qaeda, by Shia militias, and by ISIS, mm -hmm. and they were decimated. So we have to rebuild that trust. That's one of the, the key issues. But the center of gravity in Mosul are the Sunni military aged males there. We need to start recruiting them, bringing them to the security forces, paying them, and, and making them believe they have a future in their country. Michael Pregen, it's been fascinating talking to you. I'd love to talk to you again. Thank you very much for your thoughts on this today. That was right. Michael Pregen, a former US intelligence officer and advisor to the Peshmerga. Still to come, honey traps, staged punch-ups and social media infiltration. British troops beware. And Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster is Trump's new national security advisor. We hear from a former British army officer who saw him at work. The UN has declared a famine in South Sudan. The humanitarian crisis in the oil-rich and agriculturally fertile state has been caused by years of civil war. This year, up to 400 UK troops will deploy to support the UN mission there, providing vital engineering and medical assistance to help improve security at UN camps and support the mission's capacity to protect civilians and ensure humanitarian access. Well, let's talk to David Lemuria, our correspondent in the capital of South Sudan, Juba. Good to speak to you today, David. I know the line is a little bit difficult, but what can you tell us about the current situation? Hi, Kate. Um, the situation in South Sudan is quite uh, bleak in the way you look at things, what is happening at the moment. First of all, South Sudan has seen civil fighting for the past three and a half years now. And that's been continuing. And there's also a declaration of funding that was made uh, this week. And before that, there's been also a situation with malnutrition. And according to data from the UN, uh, 
one of every 10 child dies because of malnutrition. The situation is quite dire at the moment. The, the numbers of the people, like the adults that die out of this uh, famine and hunger, has not yet been uh, given out, has not been published. But what we know is that uh, one, of the, one of the states, uh, 14 states out of 46 counties in South Sudan, is heavily affected by the, uh, it has been hit hard by the famine. And uh, we're, we're talking about more than 100,000 people who are facing famine or are currently feeling the heat of the family itself. And this can escalate if an urgent fund is not extended. This is over okay. over and above those who have suffered from the fighting and those like uh, tens of thousands who died during the fighting. David, um, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there just because the quality of the line is having difficulty um, hearing what you're saying exactly. David Lemuria in Juba in South Sudan. Thank you, though, for your time today. Um, Christopher, um, the UN is describing this as a man-made famine. It really shouldn't be happening in a fertile country such as this, should it? Um, I used to go down to South Sudan before, that part of Sudan before it became South Sudan. I used to go down quite a lot. Um, and it was almost the equivalent of the old Rhodesia um, uh, that that it was a sort of a breadbasket. It was that good. And as David was just telling us, we're talking of here of perhaps 100,000 people in terrible straits uh, and 10,000 people quite recently have died simply, not because of the famine, the locusts haven't turned up, it's simply because warfare and who controls. And then behind this, of course, is the the the, the need on one side to get their hands on the oil production, mm. and that is that that's the that's the encouragement for them. So yeah, it's not the normal famine stuff. This is because warfare is is going on in one of the most difficult parts of the of of the continent of Africa to control. This is a, a desperate situation getting worse, and this year around 400 UK. UK troops deploying in support of the UN mission there. How much of a difference can they actually make? What will they do exactly? You don't. It doesn't take much to get things working. Uh, what it does, what the difficulty is, is when you're in a United Nations group, is to know what your terms of reference are and also your rules of engagement. And so what is your function? Your function actually is to take the local people and say, listen, I think if we set up a communications uh, unit here, a shack, we can actually get you talking to another part of uh, South Sudan and we can find out what the difficulties are there and we can actually move people around. Also take them and show them the mechanics, and it sounds absolutely pathetic, but the mechanics of getting supplies off the backs of trucks without, without it sort of smashing or whatever. How to plan, uh, we're back to this thing about intelligence gathering, how to plan where to get certain things that the people need to another part of the country, knowing from overflying from drones, etc., who's operating there? Is there a group that's, that's from one of the armies? And so, just a small number of people, let's say 50 Brits, who have done this before. The army's very good at this, and it's been in that part of the world. After all, Sudan, this part of Sudan, used to be part of Egypt, which the British used to run. Um, this declaration of famine, there is a threat of a similar crisis emerging in Somalia, Yemen, and parts of Nigeria. How much of a difference does it make when, the, when a famine is declared? Um, when a famine is declared, it, it, everybody gets involved or thinks they're going to get involved. And so it's everything from somebody saying, look, um, you know, text famine and send three quid. Uh, everybody starts to try to get into money, etc. What you don't have, 
you don't have anybody with authority in charge. And this is happening at the moment in Yemen. It's happening in, to some extent in Somalia, not as much. And it's certainly happening in South Sudan. And it's the uncertainty. I got, I'm got i involved in, in some training down there, which we've had to move people just this last weekend. We've actually had to move them out into what kind Uganda. Of training? It's they're, they're ordinance for the Church of England. And we've actually had to take them out and put them into Uganda because they're not safe, simply because they're ordinance for the Church of England. They're not taking part in anything. They're just, you know, young men who want to be a priest, etc. Mm. Um, but we're ha- that's the sort of thinking. To do that is actually costing, in terms of people, somewhere in the region of 120 people are involved in actually just trying to rescue those four. You imagine what happens when you've got 10,000 in a camp at the moment, all, uh, all dying where you could have fixed it with with putting in the military on a grand scale, seal off the, the people that are trying to, to, to take advantage of this famine, you could actually be feeding them in two months. Christopher, stay with us. Now, British troops deploying to the Baltic risk being dragged into staged punch-ups seduced by phony call girls or hacked online by Russian spies. The Director-General of the Estonian Information Bureau has warned that Russia will attempt to sabotage the country's relations with NATO and the West. Well, meanwhile, Russia's military has created a force tasked with waging information warfare. Well, let's talk to former Kremlin advisor Alexander Nekrasov. Uh, Good to speak to you today, Alexander. And uh, um, Russia's quite good at this sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> good afternoon. Uh, well, I don't know about Russia being too good about it, but uh, let me tell you something. The British troops, which are going to Estonia, the 800, I think, roughly, soldiers and officers, uh, there is absolutely, uh, you know, this, the chance of having any combat there is so slim. Uh, I, I, I think that France might sooner attack Britain than <laughs> so Russia will invade the Baltics uh, for the simple reason that the Baltics are not really a priority for Russia. Let's be honest about it. And um, the Baltics, of course, uh, have been uh, sort of waging this campaign, all the free governments accusing Russia of plans and uh, maneuvers on its borders and so on. But Russia is preoccupied with Ukraine. Nothing else matters for Russia. Even Syria is a sideshow for Russia. Uh, Ukraine is the number one problem because there are millions and millions of ethnic Russians there. Mm. So I don't really think that the boys will have any fighting to do. And as for those uh, honey traps and, uh, you know, fights uh, in pubs, which I, I doubt very much, actually, I find it, you know, quite bizarre, to be honest. <laughs> I, I've read those reports. Um, by the way, in one paper, this report was below another article about Russia, which said that Putin, Putin's wealth is $160 billion, private wealth. Now, this comes from the same territory, you know? It's from the same uh, origins as this... Um, Honey traps and all Are you saying things. it doesn't go on then, Alexander? Doesn't go on? What, what do you mean? The, the, the use of honey traps, the use of uh, staging certain situations to portray a, a country's military in the bad light, etc., and sort of propaganda warfare even. Well, propaganda warfare goes on on all sides. You, you, you probably noticed some of the articles in British media. Are not I, know, I know you pick on them, yes. Yes, complimentary towards Russia and so on. But um, I, I don't really think... You know, th- there is a... 
First of all, you must understand something. There's very great respect for the British Army in Russia. Because everybody, uh, unlike in Britain, they remember the war. Mm. Is there there great respect for the British Army in Estonia as well, in Russia? No, I don't think that, you know, it's any different. uh, Because uh, what people understand is that NATO is playing those games. They're provoking, you know... To be honest, Russia is not really losing much sleep over these, mm-hmm. uh, of this NATO, NATO presence. Of course, diplomatically, it has to respond, it has to say things, because, you know, for domestic purposes, Putin is already in, in an election mode. He's getting re-elected next year. So, uh, uh, yes, diplomatically, they will talk about the threat and so on. But the point is, there will never be a war with Russia because it's a nuclear superpower. Christopher and, Lee. Uh, and you don't, really, you don't really mess with a nuclear superpower. It's not Iraq, you know? Christopher Lee, um, NATO is playing these games too, so says Alexander. Well, he's quite right. I mean, the point is everybody has done this sort of thing. You know, you get... I can remember in, when the British were in Hong Kong, for example, in the colony, and uh, there was a story every week about a couple of soldiers going adrift in a knocking shop in, in, in one chai or shocking one or something like that. And nobody took any notice of it. That's what was happening. But we're in a different age now. Um, it's not just about embarrassing. It is about playing the game of uh, uncertainty. Hmm. And that's what's happening more and more. And I think the other thing to remember, I was passing uh, a, 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 a wall, a display, advertising display today, and they were telling me the, the, these great pictures great pictures that I was looking at were all taken by an iPhone 7. Now, you imagine how many people will say, well, the, the, the 800 soldiers have turned up. Um, there are certain places they might sort of go off for a, for a quiet time, a mm. quiet beer or something like that. Uh, just keep your eye. And I think the iPhone 7s are going to be in great use once they've arrived there. But they actually, but the idea that they're now doing something else with uh, uh, Mr. Shogar, the, the defence minister, has said, is that we are getting into the cyber warfare thing. We are checking other people's iPhone accounts, etc. Like this, I think, quite frankly. Can you imagine being able to check out all the 800 that are, that are turning up? Indeed. Think not. Alexander Nikrasa, just before you go, I'm just wondering in your former job as an advisor to the Kremlin, did anyone ever try to set you up? To set me up? Hmm. Well, if they did, I didn't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I remember in the old days when I was a journalist in, uh, in Britain, a uh, Soviet journalist, uh, I mean, the MI5 was following us quite openly, mm. you know, and we, we knew. And then when I went to Northern Ireland um, in uh, 1989, I was followed all the time by strange people there <laughs> because I was, you know, a Soviet journalist in Northern Ireland uh, interviewing all sorts of strange people. So, yes, but there was no, never no, a, any hostility. I mm. never, you know, noticed any hostility. They were doing their job. So uh, I understand it's a game which, which is going to be played on and on. The budgets for these mm. intelligence services are now absolutely astronomical and they're rising. And don't forget some of these intelligence agencies, including Russia, Russian one, they are exaggerating the threats a bit, mm. you know, to get the budget uh, increase. So uh, we always should remember that they tend to exaggerate the threats. This is the first time I've seen or heard a Russian defence minister announce what they're doing in this field. I think that's interesting. Alexander Nekrasov, good to speak to you today. Thank, Thank you for your you. time. Thank you.
Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster has been picked by US President Donald Trump to be his new national security advisor. So what's he like? And more importantly, what's his thinking? Well, let's talk to someone who knows. Retired Major General Andrew Mackay commanded British forces in Afghanistan. Good to speak to you today, General. How did you get to know Mr. H.R. McMaster? Yeah, hi. Good afternoon. Um, I got to know him really through... A sort of joint interest in counterinsurgency, and um, it was when I had um, when I was deploying to to Helmand um, to to run the counterinsurgency campaign there. Um, you know, as HR McMaster is pretty well known as uh, as a, a big thinker. Uh, he's very good at strategy, but he's also very good at um, thinking down through the various levels to the kind of impact on the ground, because that's where again he gained a lot of his experience. And he was a kind of man, you've said, who, who believes you can't just be a yes man because lives are at stake. Or at least that's what, what he was like when he was deployed in places like Afghanistan. Do you think he'll still think the same way when he's advising Donald Trump? I don't think uh, anything will change his um, reputation for candour and for thinking straight. He's, a, he's, he's absolutely um, very much a straight shooter, uh, but he's also a very considered thinker. And so I don't think that the, you know, the, the politics will necessarily sway him. Although, of course, you know, a lot of what he's written in the past, he's more than aware of what the politics bring when considering national security. Mm. And how did he make his mark exactly in his military career? I think as a young man, as a young commander, he was involved in the first Gulf War and um, had a pretty heroic uh, action involving um, uh, him and his tank troop were or company were very heavily outnumbered um, but I think where he really made his name um, is in what's known as the the Talafar campaign in Iraq in 2005 where he basically went against the prevailing orthodoxy of let's stay in our bases and patrol out of them and took Talafar and actually created many little uh, security outposts within the town itself because what he realized, the great insight, was to protect the population, uh, you've got to earn their confidence, and then they might actually support you. Mm. Of course, he, he doesn't need to take, he didn't need to take this job, did he, uh, as a national security advisor? Donald Trump needs him more, arguably. Well, I mean, clearly, uh, HR, uh, if you'd asked him a few weeks ago, did he think he'd be in this position? Um, I suspect he, he would have been, he would have said, um, not a chance, um, because clearly no one anticipated General Flynn's departure and then no one anticipated the next pick turning the job down. But I think HR is someone who is imbued of public service, both to his country and to his service itself. And um, I don't think he needed much persuading once the the president had tapped him on the shoulder and told him he was his pick. What did you think when you heard he'd been chosen? I thought this was a fantastic appointment and um, I think it was a very welcome appointment and you couldn't get a guy who's better suited to both think about the high strategic issues, um, to manage the political nuance and, you know, critically, and I think there's been much people have dwelled on this, to speak with candour and to speak truth to power. Um, he wrote his very famous book, Dereliction of Duty, about this. And, you know, I, I think, as I've said before, 
a lot of people forget that the second half of that uh, book title was the truth, the lies that led to Vietnam. So this is a guy who does not mind speaking with candour to anyone in authority and power. Major General Andrew Mackay, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, now, Christopher, just before... Incidentally, General Sorry? Mattis, General Mattis was the guy that recommended him. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Mattis was already in the job, so the, the President's going to take notice of what General Mattis, of all people, say. Mm, be interesting, won't it, to see how it all, all pans out and what happens uh, in the days and months to come. Um, before we finish today, Christopher, let's talk about this, uh, this bomb that was found in Portsmouth. Yeah, Portsmouth Harbour... Yeah, right under where they're going to moor one of the uh, aircraft carriers. It's a German bomb, World War Two, 500-pounder. Bought a couple of divers over the side, and, and that was it. It was all quiet down. But it's a, it. I think it's just fascinating where they're still finding, and there are hundreds and hundreds of bombs to be found because uh, the, the the government's got a bomb list. They know more or less which was taken from the Luftwaffe. Where bombs were dropped, how many, how many were dropped, where they were dropped, 24,000 tonnes of high explosive um, and 40,000 civilians killed from it. Mm. But every week there's probably about four of these bombs found, especially the more house building you do. Uh, yes, they were looking for one outside my house only recently. Luckily, none found. Yes, luckily. Yes, <laughs> OK. I tell you what, it's worth going to look and look where the bombs are. Bomb site, S-I-G-H-T, bomb site uh, website. Go and look on it. You can see all the bombs where they are. What more do you need to know? That is it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. But from me, Kate Jibbo, thanks. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.